conversation. As you know, we take one movie, one idea, and discuss it per week. But we are not doing that at all this week. Dave, uh, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to be going through the uh, old Lost in Space uh, TV show and discussing how it moved from being sort of a semi-serious um science fiction television show to a show uh, where Jonathan Harris runs around trying to escape from a giant space carrot. Well, uh, Lost in Space got off to a serious note, but Dave certainly didn't because that has nothing to do with what we will be talking about today. Dave, I was, uh, you know, not born for another 30 years when that show came out. I think it has a robot. Um, Anyway, today we're going to be talking about five films that me and Dave both loved. And these are our combined mind frames must see for 2023, as well as a couple that you should see anyway, that aren't on the list. Danger. Um, Danger. I'm assuming that's a reference to this, this archaic <laughs> television program. Um, got any honeymooners, Dave, that you want to bring out? Got any other relevant I think, references? I think any us? other second, you're going to be like bang, zoom to the moon. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to agree to have minor spoilers here. So if you haven't seen any of these five plus two films, you'll probably be okay. But we'll try to avoid, uh, you know, major spoilers. But there might be some minor ones. And, you know, you're all in for a special treat because not since pre-COVID have we recorded together in person. That's why that's sounding so great because we're actually using... Real equipment <laughs> and not uh, the lo- the beloved Zencaster app. That's right. Um, so we're actually together drinking. Shall we cheers, Dave? Cheers. We we both agree that 2023 was a great year in film. We came out of the strike late in the year. We came out of COVID delays. Um, it was a great year in film. Don't you agree, Dave? I think this was, um, you know, the year in film that we've kind of been waiting for and kind of needed. You know, um, a lot of talk about the death of film, a lot of talk about the death of American film culture, uh, a lot of worries about the industry. Um, And here we are post-COVID, post-strike. And um, I think our list is actually going to reflect something kind of different than our lists of the last few years has reflected uh, about the American film industry. Um, We were much more on the same page than we have been. I don't know why that is. Um, we don't, we, we have, we'll, we'll get into it, but <clears throat> me and you, Dave, we were on the same page this year. So, um, before we get started, let's, why don't we do some honorable, honorable mentions? Oh. These aren't the plus ones. These aren't the top five, but there are some that were like just on the cusp cusp that we didn't quite fit in, but we thought we, we'd, we'd bring out, um, Dave, what what are a couple for you that you you feel guilty about not talking about? You know, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start with honorable, 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 honorable films I didn't see in time for the voting for the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards. One of them was uh, The Color Purple. Another one was the Bernard Tavernier um, documentary, whose name uh, is a little too complicated for me to just spin out the top of my head. Um, but from what I understand, is one of the greatest greatest films of the year. Passages was a film that I didn't get to see. I know you're going to want to talk about that at some point. Of films that I did see, um, you know, but was afraid. I really would have liked to have made room on my top of the year list for that and perhaps in a top 10, but not in a top five. Um, and another one is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I know it must hurt 
uh, some of you out there not to uh, uh, know that that's going to be on our list. Um, and it hurts us a little bit too. And we're going to get to talk about why, um, probably the last one that I would name, oh, geez, Mike past lives, perfect days. You know, these incredible little slice of life movies, um, that, uh, again, you would have liked to have found a place for. And uh, I'll even give a little bit of a nod to a movie I like better than Mike did, uh, poor things. Um, um, which I had an awful lot of fun at and enjoyed, but in the end had some misgivings about, and, uh, it was up against some really, really stiff competition. What about you, Mike? Uh, yeah, stiff is right. Bo is afraid. Definitely. Um, I love the ambition and the risk taking in that movie, but, uh, unfortunately I, it just was too much of a mess for me to include, but I love it. Asteroid city. Hmm. Really in, perfectly walked me through the motions of what it was like to live in COVID lockdown. But at the same time, just didn't speak to me. It didn't feel as relevant as some of the other films that we'll be talking about today. Uh, I wanted to love Napoleon so much. You know, it was not what it promised. It was kind of the Norseman of 2023. <laughs> oh, you're going to compare. You're going to compare. Well, actually, I love the Norseman, but um, uh, I, I I didn't love Napoleon. Um, yeah, so those those are my someone by honorable honorable. I regret not seeing um, Master Gardener. I mm. regret not seeing yeah. um, showing up. Those are on my list of must sees that I actually didn't get to. Um, yeah, so yeah, showing up was another one. Shall uh, we get to our combined list? Absolutely. So uh, top of our combined list was uh, Nun Munchers Part Three. The musical. Um, I have to say that, you know, when it comes to nun munchers movies or movies where nuns get munched. Um, are, we are, we, we already have a lot of, uh, a we, lot of joke time here are, today. We, what? Nothing. <laughs> just, I'm just saying we've already, we've already gone off on okay, a couple of joke okay, tangents. Okay. Maybe. You know, this was a year where, um, great filmmakers, um, reminded us what Hollywood can do. Uh, what studios can do. And, um, uh, uh, you know, we might as well start with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, don't you think? Yeah, let's do that. That was kind of, that was on my number one for, that's number one on my list for the year. Uh, I think that, you know, when you said, Dave, earlier, I wasn't trying to add joke on top of joke, but he says, like, will film die? My question is, which will die first? Uh, <laughs> some of our filmmakers or film? <laughs> like, who's going to outlive film? Uh, Mel Brooks is getting, you know... Uh, He's getting a lifetime achievement award. He's 137. <laughs> Scorsese is pushing 80. You know, you would think that this person would be on their way out, but I feel like Killers of the Flower Moon is his best, is his best film yet. It has so many elements that you love, a plot that isn't isn't quick. Some of the best acting that you're you're gonna ever see. Um, I love the introduction of Jesse Plemons' character midway through the plot. I love a plot that's um, has a twist. Mm. That's not necessarily a twist, but also a shout out for honorable mention American fiction that has a twist in the first. Oh, there's act. another one, yeah, that we wish um, we could have fit in. Uh, anyway, I did love see the, that one. I but... love the twist of Jesse Plemons' character kind of showing up out of nowhere. I love the slow, methodical reveal of how guilty certain characters in the movie are. I think the plot is a perfect um, mystery that you know, you know, poor purloined letter mystery you kind of know where it's going the whole time the answer is in front of you the whole time you just don't want to believe it including some of our characters don't want to believe it until the very 
end. Um, but I think what really makes Killers of the Flower Moon stand out is um, the cast. Mm. Uh, let's just set aside the A-list. You talk about the A-list. For me, the people who are not in the A-list that appeared in this film, son of the, the native chief who gives an impassioned, you know, we're still warriors speech is like one of my favorite movies from that. Some favorite moments from that scene, the side characters, the sheriff, the, you know, it's just got a rich layer of people in place in the movie. And I think that really makes it feel full and alive. And one of the reasons why you're constantly being introduced to new people, new places, new ideas, you don't mind it. And that's what makes the four hours go by so fast. Yeah. The, the astonishing thing about killers of the flower moon. Um, I am not a fan of the Irishman, which was, uh, a much lauded film that Martin Scorsese did prior to this. I felt that I had seen that story before. I had seen all those characters before, and I had seen them get the sort of comeuppance that they get uh, before. In this film, you really get a kind of a look at two um, cultures. And, you know, there have been people that said that Martin Scorsese shouldn't necessarily be the one to make this film. I think he might actually... um, have even said that he was sort of aware of the problematizing aspect of that himself. Um, and this is a film in which white figures do play a prominent role in the rescue, if you will, of uh, the indigenous figures of the marginalized uh, uh, characters and, and, and people groups uh, that, are, that are in the film. But, you know, this is a film about the, the Osage Indians being killed for their oil rights by... Um, uh, uh, white people who um, figured out, you know, various ways to extract that wealth from them and then ultimately settled on doing that, uh, um, if, if you will, the hard way, just by starting to uh, kill them. And um, in, in some sense, you know, it plays a little bit like a murder mystery and it kind of reminded me of some of Scorsese's crime films. You know, I don't think for me that in the wake of like uh, Raging Bull and, um, and uh, uh, um, the uh, taxi driver and and uh, um, Goodfellas, that this is, you know, Scorsese's greatest film. Uh, but those are some of the greatest films ever made, um, you know, American films ever made. So I I would put this uh, on a very short list of his of his of his of his great work. And it takes um, this story. And um, shows a real sincere concern uh, for the great themes that are present uh, in it. Uh, guilt and innocence and love and betrayal. And it uh, is not a film that I think that once you watch, you forget it very easily. Uh, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is, is great in the film. I think Robert De Niro gives one of his greatest performances in years. And uh, I think Lily Gladstone uh, is hopefully going to win the Academy Award. She's absolutely towering in in this in this movie. And the last thing I'll say about it is, again, you get a look at two different cultures. And one is this indigenous culture that has wealth and a prosperity of a short and, and a certain kind of marginalization thrust upon it. Um, and that tries uh, to hang on to its culture in the midst of that. And you have uh, a white culture um, full of people in, 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 you know, who uh, are representative of various uh, levels of privilege within, um, within their, their culture. And it's, it's heartbreaking to watch the way 
that um, that affects them, you know, because you, you don't usually think of privileged people as being um, sympathetic. And certainly the things these people do aren't sympathetic, but they are people who are, are, are definitely selling their souls for a bowl of pottage. And um, Scorsese does an amazing job of, uh, of telling a story of, of real dignity. Uh, and uh, uh, I, this was just a, an impossible film to ignore on our top five. So, yeah, I think uh, we're, we've got pretty basic picks here. We didn't go out there. You know, we didn't. Uh, we don't have any crazy picks this year. We're pretty in the mainstream, you know. Yeah, it's weird. Privilege, white men, we're in there. Uh, we don't have any crazy, crazy picks. I, I hope I'm not upsetting you, Dave. But, yeah, we, we, we have the. Uh, well, I mean, it was, it's, it was hard. We talked a long time about the various issues that various films were presented. Yep. Um, you know, all of our, all of us strangers was a film that we really loved. It's not going to be in this top. Five. I, I do. I do feel like there's a combination of us not getting out there and seeing uh, more, a more diverse set of films. I think I'm going to own that. But at the same time, I do think there's something to be said with studio films that were already underway being more ready and available at the time of the, in 2023 due to the writer's strike. Um, I don't know what's going on with that, but it's weird. And there were films like origins by Ava DuVernay um, that I think are going to be remembered as really great films um, based on what I am hearing about them. Um, I didn't have a chance to see that film uh, until late. And I don't think Mike, you had a chance hardly at all. And uh, you know, this, this was a year of like, I got to say, though, even in the midst of that, I feel pretty confident of the films that we pick. These films are definitely good. But all of that is to introduce our next film, which is another big movie mm. with a big budget, with big stars made by a big white man. And that is about a big bomb. Oppenheimer. And if this movie had bombed, that would have been you pretty know, there, damn funny. There was a um, there there was a there was a f- article out this year. I recommend everyone read it, even though it it's kind of uh, anachronistic now. It doesn't make sense in this time period. But it's like. What's on the stake if Oppenheimer fails? Mm. Um, because it was kind of like it will, I do remember people saying the exact same thing about uh, oh, what was his previous movie Tenet. People were like Tenet's got to work or movies are dead. But people kind of felt yeah. that way about Oppenheimer this year. But it wasn't. It didn't fail. It was a huge success. I think it's made in excess of eight hundred million. It, I don't know when I last heard about it, and I heard it wasn't going to make a billion. That's about the last time I stopped checking in. You know, Dave, I love Killian Murphy. Oh, Peaky Blinders fan. Uh, I loved his performance. I've loved him since I first saw him years and years ago. And it's probably the first time a lot of Americans saw him, which was in uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. I love that movie. I love uh, He has got great expressive eyes, which listeners of the podcast will know are characteristic I love in an actor or actress. Let me take a shot here. <laughs> uh, so it's no surprise that I loved Killian and just this year I was in the mood for a big story I we have one quote unquote little story on our list that is exceptional but for the most part I think we're back people want big stories that big is in we're kind of burnt out on Marvel we want big stories about big dramatic historical set pieces and we got Killers of the Flower Moon which is kind of like a a big story blown up and the microscope. And then we got this story that needs no microscope, Oppenheimer, about the drama behind the creation of the atom bomb. I love Killian Murphy's performance. The cinematography is on point. Um, 
I had no problem with the dual narrative. You, you know, I'm thinking about dual narratives a lot these days. And uh, I had no problem with that. And I thought that that worked very well for me. So it's almost like you got your Killian Murphy chocolate cake. And then you get, got a little bit of a Robert Downey Jr. icing mm, oh, mm, man. on the top. Oh, uh, man. S- s- tell us how, about your love for our number two uh, movie. It's not next, you know, we're not late. Not All right, right going to take a little shot here? Please, go, please do. Going to go from Oppenheimer to Sloppenheimer if we're not careful. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, so Oppenheimer. You know, I had said earlier um, that this was a year when studios reminded us of what they can do. And one of the things that, that studios can do occasionally really, really well is they can take an important subject and they can make an important movie out of it. And they can bring that subject to vivid life they can put it in a context um and they can create a lot of discussion around important subjects and um over and over and over again i think uh the movies on this list uh did that (coughs) and it's one reason we wound up with what you know some people are going to find is kind of a basic list um but again uh the result of a lot of conversation on our end and a lot of a, a lot of thought um oppenheimer (coughs) <coughs> for my money sets not only the character of Oppenheimer in a context, but the whole project of um, the atom bomb within um, the context uh, that is a really dark and disturbing um, assessment of where America was uh, as the result of, you know, fears about um, communist infiltration as a result of fears about, um, you know, spy activity in World War II. Um, you have the government around, uh, running around, keeping track of who goes to what parties and what meetings. Um, and then using that information in really, really disturbing ways um, that, you know, I think we're all thinking about a lot these days. This is in a lot of ways a really timely movie. Uh, and it's also a movie about letting the genie out of the box. Uh, and not only how aware Oppenheimer was of the fact that that was happening, but um, the fact that um, Oppenheimer himself was a very problematic person in some ways. Um, Emily Blunt is absolutely stunning as his wife in this film. Um, there really isn't a weak member of the cast. And um, um, Matt Damon is really, really great as sort of the general in charge of the sorry the the uh, los alamos project i saw this film twice in 70 millimeter um at the music box it floored me both times it was better the second time and i can't wait to watch it again um and uh every year we get a, a you know big biopic you know a whole bunch of them as a matter of fact and mike and i had talked about this earlier you know on the one hand excuse me, you have Ridley Scott making a movie he's always wanted to make, Napoleon, and showing what exactly not to do when you make a historical biopic. And then you have Christopher Nolan actually knocking it out of the park in this film, which is at once intimate, uh, absolutely epic, and absolutely uh, timeless. Uh, A strong contender for me for Best Picture. Um but it has a lot of great competition. We're going to talk about some of that competition uh, as we go down the list. I think I saw Oppenheimer three times, never in 70 millimeter times. Never just worked, never worked for me. 
Um, I, I'm a sucker for a person who gets carried away by the circumstances in which they're wrapped up in. We talked about that mm. narrative theme when we talked yeah. about marriage story. I think marriage story is a great depiction of, you know, something bigger eating your life. Divorce can do that. But developing a nuclear bomb can also do that. And you see Oppenheimer. What I love is you see character development. Like when we did the review of Oppenheimer, kind of like a deconstruction, a, a debasing of um, Robert Downey Jr.'s Strauss. And you see a construction and an improvement in the character of Oppenheimer as he realizes the kind of the horror that he's unleashed upon the world. And my theme for 2023, Dave, and all these movies are going to fit into it, is I think a question that lots of people are asking them, and that is asking themselves today, and that is can we escape the past? Can we escape the circumstances of which we've been put into our hands? And one of those circumstances is the presence of nuclear weapons and the ending of Oppenheimer's very much a reflection on that kind of tends to give you an answer or at least suggests one horrible answer. But I think um, both in Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, we were asking ourselves, can we escape these systems and these things that we've inherited to create a better world? I think a lot of these movies have a eye towards a better world, but are really anxious about the present um, as a result of past problems. We just can't seem to escape. We'll continue to talk about that as we discuss more films. And, you know, there's one great scene in Oppenheimer that reminds me of an honorable mention. uh, And that is, um, I can't remember the direct quote. I was trying to look it up. But there's a scene where one character is speaking about Emily Blunt's character, Oppenheimer's wife, and Oppenheimer himself. uh, And the character, she does something unexpected, spoiler free. And um, one of the characters says, Never pretend to know what's going on in someone else's marriage or fools. Only fools pretend to know what's going on in other people's marriages. And I will use that as an excuse to uh, honorably mention Anatomy of a Fall. A oh, movie, absolutely. And a movie that is very much about unraveling the mysteries and the ambiguities that go unseen and unspoken, even to your psychiatrist, even to your dog, perhaps. Um, <laughs> what goes on behind closed doors. I, yeah. and, and I think Oppenheimer has a very brief mention of how you'll never know that. Uh, and Emily Blunt is certainly true in her performance, nailing that aspect of her character. You know, one thing I'll say about Anatomy of a Fall is uh, uh, it stars Sandra Huller, who's, um, of course, you know, um, star of another film that's going to did end up on her list. But um, it is... Um, you know, you almost just talked me into putting it back in, uh, onto the list because because of my love of that uh, ambiguity of that ambiguity. And such. Yeah, the ambiguity, uh, the way that you talked about how that film looks at the lens um, through the lens of true crime in 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 courtroom drama into that marriage and into that family. I think um, it's um, you know it's a deeply human film, and again, you know, part of a very painful discussion we had about what did and did not wind up on the list. So uh, are we going to move on? We're going to do the next one. Do you need a uh, top off, Dave, of uh, Angel's Envy? I think I may I think I think may right, need a uh, top off. By the way, this episode is brought to you by Angel's Envy, <laughs> Angel's Envy from, the, from the sellers of Lincoln Hickerson. Uh, Angel's Envy. Envy. Could you, did you say Lincoln Hankerson? Bring, bring it over here, Dave. Is that Lincoln Hankerson? Hinker Lincolnson? Is that the... Oh, there you go. I'll top off myself, too. These are not sound effects. These are 
No, this the is actual a bottle sound of, of us pouring it. This is a bottle of medium price range whiskey being passed around here at the old uh, at the old I headquarters. Envy, delicious stuff. <laughs> medium priced whiskey. <laughs> oh man, let's he, just start doing shots every he, time we. Every time we mention the fact that something didn't get on the list, that'll be great. <laughs> we could do that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, Anatomy of a Fall, honorable mention. Um, yeah, what more can I say? Can you tell we don't have notes today either? Mm. Normally, normally, this is the part where I get us back on track. That's why we have the Angels Envy, no notes. We don't so need notes to safer. talk about these movies. We, 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 we have an excuse them. now. Let's go on to a third movie. And um, we since we just referenced it, Will it bother you to go out of order? Actually, I had I think I had this next on the order. If you're thinking of the one that please uh, inter- please please go ahead. Okay, this th- this is a film that Mike and I were both really waiting to see. I'm a huge fan of its director. One of his last films was called Under the Skin, which is kind of a horror science fiction film uh, that's quite a bit different than the novel that it's based on. Um, and of course, I'm talking about Jonathan Glazer and Zone of Interest. Zone of Interest takes place in uh, a house with a beautiful garden um, and, uh, you know, with this kind of idyllic family. It's just that the family is um, uh, the family of a Nazi commandant who runs a camp, which is on just on the other side of the wall uh, of their garden. And um, it promised to be something special. Um what I will say about it is um, it more than lived up to my hopes for it. Um, this is a film that uses sound masterfully um, to just let you observe this family, even as they are hearing what is going on in the camp outside of their, uh, outside of their um, 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 garden wall. And of course, the things they're hearing are are horrible. Um, That said, they don't lose their humanity, even in the midst of being deaf to the fact that they are on the absolute wrong side of history. I have long loved Sandra Huller ever since I saw her in Requiem uh, many years ago. And it is no surprise at all to me to uh, see her in two really, really, really great films this year. Um, I definitely see an Academy Award in her future if she uh, continues making um, cinema uh, with directors like Jonathan Glazer. And it is devastating um, to simply be present and witness the way that um, Glazer injects the present into our future, Uh, especially at one point in the film when I think it's sort of suggested that um, not only this family, but uh, entire uh, continents are going to be haunted by uh, the microcosm of what this um, what this family went through in the war. Wow, I I uh, 
some of your phrasing is a little concerning. I, I'll be honest. Like, you know, like they didn't lose their humanity, what they went through in the war. I mean, mm. uh, I, I'm not sure I'd phrase it those ways. Th- that's fair. Yeah. Um, to me, I think they kind of did lose their humanity. Um, and they're kind of just going through the motions and living through like the raw materialistic mm. side of what it means to be a middle class family, which definitely has re- resonance with with today. You know, I think it's very clear from the opening scene where, you know, she callously removes the lipstick of the person whose coat she's wearing, who she fully we are assumed to know that knows that person is dead, doesn't care, doesn't consider them a person. And um that's the most shocking thing and it, it, it it's not overdone the way you hear the sounds of violence and shooting in the background over the um no, it's a very subtle film and i think it's why mike i think it's why you're dead right and why i missed i misspoke is because the way in which we watch these characters lose their humanity is exactly what you're describing mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people ask like why why is that little girl at night giving apples why is that in the film it doesn't relate to the main characters and i think that's to remind you it's like to give you a little glimmer of you know kindness of like remember what kindness is mm-hmm. um and even the um gross's child you know i kind of got the sense that she had some guilt still left in her um but it's hard to say that the boy not so much maybe <laughs> well so so to be clear you know there's a scene where uh near the beginning of the film some clothing and various uh various bits and bobs are brought into the house for the Sandra Hula character to examine and pick from. And it very quickly becomes apparent that these have been taken from the people who've been checked into the camp who are probably going up and smoke in the uh, smokestack that we can see at various times um, during the film. And uh, there's also a point where um, the mother, uh, I believe Sandra Huller's mother in the film, comes to visit and she very quickly figures out what's going on next door and she leaves. And Sandra Huller's response to that is exactly the opposite of what you would hope for for the character, and it's a speaks to her dehumanization. Yeah, it's a world where everything they gain is built upon the suffering of others, and I think that gives you a lot of thought. And there is one very mysterious and intriguing scene towards the end of the film, yeah. which I'm not sure how to interpret. I think it could be interpreted different ways, but unfortunately it would be far too spoilery to discuss in uh, this podcast. But um, definitely um, a film that keeps you thinking. Some call it a horror film. You know, I don't. We've talked about what is a horror film. And, you know, to me, Dave, a horror is when the unknown comes into the familiar. This is um, almost uh, and we've talked about a few movies that are like this. This is where the the familiar comes into the unknown. You know, it's like the everyday mm-hmm. is the horror. Yes, and it's and it's linked. It's not like there's a monster. You are the monster. Well, do you think? Let me ask you this: Would you compare this to Haneke, Michael Haneke? I almost. <sighs> no, would. I I I mean, in terms of pace and sound design, I can see it there. The, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you, Anatomy of a Fall really reminded me a lot of Haneke. That's interesting, but. In, in Henneke, there's always a little bit of mystery. I definitely thought of the white ribbon. Like, mm. I was thinking, he was mm-hmm. one of the kids in the white ribbon. But there's no school teacher. There's no, like, the child in cachet. There's no, 
there's no neutral observer in this film besides us, the viewer. Well, the and, mother, and, the mother-in-law, but she comes and goes very quickly. I'm not, when I'm she... not giving them that. The mother-in-law is, is is a little bit guilty too. We are kind of the neutral observer. That's why, if you notice, all the shots oh, I are see. very intentionally set back. You get no close-ups. You are. I think the I heard the director describe it as Big Brother. It's like you're in the Big Brother house. So we're that neutral viewer, that judging viewer. Um, but I, I don't think that there's the element of... Yeah, there's mi- an almost Orwellian aspect to the way that we are looking at history in this film. Yeah. You know? There's no mystery in it's this. Almost, it, it almost comes across like a, a simple fable or something, um, but without any Hansel magic. Hansel and Gretel is, is read during the, and during the movie. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have any magic. This is a, this is a, this is a fable of the plain, ordinary world. And in that scene, that that mysterious scene, which we're not talking too much about, one interpretation of that is something could have happened there. But, you know, choices were made. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether that, you know, whether that's a vision of the future or a vision of something the person could have avoided, I don't know. But, you know, I think it's just it pounds you over the head with um the darkness of the human soul. It is on full display here in a very believable, scarily believable way that I do think has some resonance with like our modern day materialistic world. Um, you know, I think we're used to watching movies where often um, things happen that are very earth shattering to the villains of the piece. And um, um, curiously, uh, that does not really happen to any of the villains uh, of the piece here. They are brought to just uh, ignobleness, and they're um, and uh, they are made small in certain ways for 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 my money. Um, and I think that um, that's what's probably most frightening about the way that this film views evil is. You know, so often we want a guide for evil that will tell us that we're good because we're not doing the big bad thing. And the big bad thing is usually something that has a lot of Sturm und Drang uh, attached to it, right? And um, here characters are making simple day-to-day choices that slowly um, turn them into monsters. And they would not recognize um, monsters in the mirror, but they are there, and uh, it is why this film is is so potent. It's very good. Yes, it's very good. Not Haneke, but uh, I can see. I thought of the White Ribbon while we were watching it. Uh, of more in like, how do you get people like this? I think the White Ribbon has the answer to that. Hopefully, we're not breeding a whole bunch right now in America <laughs> with Andrew Tate and TikTok. Oh, uh, that's a discussion oh, for another boy. film. Um, so, you know, one more thing I wanted to say about, uh, zone of interest is, you know, I've, I think we all know, like I talk about it resonates with today, but, um, are people actually asking who's suffering for their middle-class lifestyle? I don't know if, uh, it seems like everyone who watches the movie, uh, they always see themselves as look how bad the Nazis are. They never think I could be on the other side of that wall, which I find intriguing. You want to talk about privilege. That is a privilege right there. Um, but well, yeah, I, I, mean, I think that's what the filmmaker is saying. And yeah. it's going undiscussed. It's not just how bad Nazis are, but 
think about where your stuff's coming from. Well, and I mean, I think Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer, um, you know, these are movies about about choices and about the powerful making choices for everybody else. And I, I think that I, I, I think that you know, heard it referenced recently that you know when you read the writings of Martin Luther King, um, up until the time in which he was assassinated, it really was right about the time when he started to stress. Um, economic exploitation and uh, an overall rethinking of capitalism in America and not an abandoning of, of, of capitalism, but just a reshaping for a more equitable basis uh, within the country. Um, that's, you know, right about the point when he was assassinated. And I think that that remains um, as much as racism, sort of the one thing that you do not talk about. You know, I just remember Harvey Picar, the American cartoonist, getting kicked off a of Letterman after a series of really fun appearances over a year or two, um, all because he decided to challenge the fact, you know, of who was sponsoring the show and what that meant. And I, I, I think that those sorts of conversations about institutionality are are a big part of where different people want to take uh, our political discourse right now. And um, it's incredibly important precisely for the reasons that Zone of Interest shows. Okay. Well, you know, capitalism's not so bad, Dave. Um, let's talk about a capitalist movie. If you have money Sponsored. to capitalize on. but <laughs> Well, you, I know you love Barbie. Let's talk about the corporate <laughs> shills that we are. We, we are love this movie shills. about a doll <laughs> sponsored by the people who made, who produced by the people who make the doll. Um, they made the movie. They make the doll. They make the dolls about the movie. They make the movies about the dolls. So let's talk about Barbie. Um, All right. Let's 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 tackle. It's capitalist. You do you agree? It's a capitalist movie. Well, let's tackle capitalism. I think there's a bigger elephant in the room, and that's whether or not you ever you ever masturbated to a naked Barbie. Uh, uh, I think that's Dave, the question. We cannot have this the, <laughs> on the kids-friendly section of pod. This is I'm not going to edit it out. The kids are really interested. We would in definitely be kicked out if anyone actually reported us. Um, no. I can honestly say no to that question. <laughs> All right, back to capitalism. I was never that desperate. <laughs> so, call, remind me to tell your parents to get uh, a Sears catalog, Dave. Jeez. <laughs> Oh, I had those too. Anyway, oh, um, I was, yeah, I mean, obviously that's the interesting thing about Barbie is it is, you know, again, another great big studio movie, right? And it's a studio movie based on a huge intellectual property. And um, I think you and I, after a lot of conversation, just kept coming back to the fact that it takes a very complicated subject and, um, does interesting things with it all the way through that there you thought that there were a few uh, missteps. Um, I tended, I think to overlook those or maybe not think that they were quite as missteppy, but uh, overall, you know, that, that's a question. You know, do we consider like Barbie is Barbie just an attempt, a crass attempt on the part of Mattel, right? You know, uh, to redeem um, the corporate image of Barbie enough to continue selling it to little girls and I, I think this is a movie that um, 
that circumvents that, you know. Um, I think Mattel was very smart. They hired Greta Gerwig, right? And so she got together with Noah Baumbach, and they wrote a movie about all the things that Barbie has brought to the table in terms of discussion in the last, you know, whatever, you know, few decades. And they do a, a really good job of addressing those things in credible and um, sincere ways. And um, they do it so damn entertainingly. I mean, that's literally one of the only soundtracks that I that I have played um, this year. Really? Been the I, got, I got on my wife for her birthday, the the soundtrack. And I will say, I was trying to trigger you so hard by, by mentioning capitalism. Uh, I think I did. I, I don't know if I did 100%. But yeah, this is definitely a capitalist shill movie. I have no problem with that. What? It, 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 I mean, it is. No. Um, Go ahead. But at the same time, it deserves to be in our top five. And Greta Gerwig deserved to have a nomination for Best Director. And I will tell you why. Of all the films this year including Asteroid City, including Oppenheimer. There is no other film that has a singular unified auteur vision as much as Barbie. Whoa. From the background design to the music choices to the hairstyles, the costuming, the plot, which Mattel probably had little hands in. It was There are some interesting plot choices. To You can feel Greta Gerwig's touch on every aspect of, of this film, and that is the hallmark, intended, pun intended, of a great director. You, This movie breathes one unified Greta Gerwig vision, and for those reasons, it not being nominated for Best Director, I can't believe it. I, I, I'm really pretty astounded. Asteroid City has a unified vision too, but it's, you know, almost kind of a parody of itself, even though it's good. Oppenheimer definitely has Nolan's stamp all over it and Killers of the Flower Moon, which I do think is a slightly better movie than Barbie, definitely has a combination. It has a Scorsese soup, all the elements of Scorsese mixed in, but nothing as as true to the simple vision, that pink simple vision that I think Barbie has. And for those reasons, that is a great um, artistic achievement. Um, besides any quabbles I'd have. And I've made my peace with capitalism. You know, it's going to go one day probably. I, <laughs> we don't get too <laughs> political on here, but like, I'm not going to surround and whine about Mattel. They are what they are. And if you don't like that, then don't see Barbie and don't support them. Um, but at the same time, don't, you know, they, they are, there is some, it does seem like there is some effort to move it into a more positive, modern direction in this film. Yeah, and it's really interesting too because I mean, I guess the main word that I would that that, that I that I don't like is shill, um, which I think for you is kind of a negotiable word anyway. I mean, you're trying to get across that, of course, you know, this is a movie that Mattel wanted to see made, and they've been trying to get it made for years, and of course they want to get it made because they want to protect their intellectual property and everything else. I think that, you know, um, it's possible to be guys naive about the fact that when something is worth a uh, billion dollars, you don't just uh, throw it out into, um, you know, uh, to the wind to see what happens to it. You take care of it. And and they, they went and they hired Greta Gearwig. And this movie asks a lot of great questions and it brings up a lot of great points. And they could have marketed this a lot more than they did. You know, it, uh, you saw a lot of Barbie references all over. 
I went to the hair salon and there was a Barbie. They had a Barbie sale. Starbucks had a Barbie drink. Those were all not unofficial things. There was no Barbie toys and Happy Meals. They definitely didn't go. I call them a shill, and I think it's a long-term shill. <laughs> it's not a short-term shilling. Sure, sure. Um, but they could have gone harder. But it, I, I can't. I mean, it does feel it is a movie made by even more than the big Hollywood students. It's not even so much that a large corporation made it. it you can just feel that it was made to. Um, I mean, I don't know what their what Mattel's long-term goals are. But it, it, you could t- you could f- feel their hands and the, stir in the pot a little bit, but not so much that it overwhelmed the single unity of vision that is consistent throughout all elements of the film. And for that reason, that very compelling reason, I think it's a great artistic triumph and a movie that speaks to a very particular message as we a type of person that we talked about during our review of Barbie. That is that women of Miss Gerwig's age. Um, Actually, she's. They got married. Did you know they got married recently? Oh, she's wow. still Miss Gerwig, but interesting. Uh, women of that age, you know, it's no, 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 no strangers that a lot of the humor is a reference to that. All the women hired are basically thirty to forty-five in so the film. Get, I got to tell you, I interviewed, I interviewed Ger- Greta Gerwig once. You, Dave, you told that story like three times. My on this God, podcast. my God, you had a crush on what a her. woman! You got the autograph. What a woman! You can tell it again if you want. I'm just telling you, you told the story like three times. I walked into the room. I would have followed her by the end of that interview. I would have followed her uh, into Barbie land or anywhere else. She just vibrated um, joy and creativity and intelligence. And um, what a joy to see her. Um, Very loyal to her friends. Yeah, I, I just that's think... All, that's what I'm going to say there. And I remember her from House of the Devil. I mean, I remember my first impression of Greta Gerwig was watching her head explode um, during a shotgun blast of a horror movie she made called House of the Devil with uh, uh, was with uh, Ty West. And shes you did not expect that to happen, but you had no idea who Greta Gerwig it was at the time. Um, I think I'm still probably one of the few people in the world that has a House of the Devil poster signed by Greta Gerwig. Um um, because I brought it to the interview because I just was had followed her career and was a big fan. But she, you know, and, and let's talk about... She's a household name now. It's amazing. Oh, and she's, yeah, and she's going to stay there unless she, you know... And, no one knows who the hell Noah Bombach is, I'll tell you that. Well, which is funny because, of course, Noah Bombach is his own powerhouse of creativity of and course, great yeah. storytelling. I think, you know, uh, and I love, by the way, I thought White Noise of his was grossly underrated last year. Uh, and it has more and more and more. I've thought that uh, as I uh, a- as the year has gone on. But you know, an interesting thing about the Oscars and Barbie. You know, I agree with you about Greta Gerwig not getting a nom. Uh, I find that distasteful. Um, it just doesn't sit right. I, I just I, I can't go there, and it's hard. You know, because of course we're going to nominate all the other people we nominated, and there are fewer people that can be on that bill. Um, but here's a question for you. What about Margot Robbie? Uh, uh, what about um, um, our friend Ken? What about Ryan Gosling? Uh, what about America Ferrera? I thought she was kind of an odd choice, to be honest. Um, for, for a little a bit. That that scene of her, um, her one scene of a rant, a speech, a soliloquy, depending on how you took it. A lot of people like that. I, I didn't think it was like the best in the film, so it kind of was surprising to me that hmm. she was nominated. But um, in terms of, um, I think the nomination <laughs> for the Ken performance was a given. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah. 
I, I go back and forth in my head over that one. Uh, uh, Margot Robbie, uh, you know, that, that that's a little harder. I think there were a lot of, you know, did you feel this way too? There were just so many great performances this year. Oh, it was. We were very, very blessed this year. Jeez. I think if I had to take one of the movies out for um, best directing for the the Oscars, um, I I think I'd have to take out Anatomy of a Fall. Oh boy, that's, I think that's that kind of took Barbie's spot. And I love Anatomy of a Fall. It was my number six of the year, but. Higher than Barbie, which was my number seven, even though it made it into our combined top five. Um, I just, I just think that the the unitary. When I look at a director, I'm like, what what is the director doing on this film? And Poor Things, Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon. I mentioned those already. Definitely, you can feel the director's touch. Anatomy of a Fall, you can as well. Maybe I'm just less familiar with her work. Um, Justine Triet, but. I had no question I was feeling it in, uh, you know, in Barbie, I probably would move her out. Well, you yeah, know, I don't know. And two, that's this, tough. And two, this is a year because we're going to, you know, we're sneaking up on the last film on our on our uh, on our top five here. I I think that this is a year when it was, um, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of films that were great films. Uh, Godzilla minus one was a truly great great movie and uh it's a godzilla movie uh it's a kaiju movie and i don't know how much more you can say about it against a movie that it's not like it just is sort of a perfect example of what it is and you know maybe the host is a better kaiju movie for sure than godzilla minus one um, and, and contains, you could definitely see that in awards contention for a best foreign film. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it was nominated the year it came out or not, but I think that's what we have this year. We have some really different films. Um, you know, Killers and Oppenheimer are probably the, the most like each other of our, of our top five. Everything else is very unique. Uh, in its presentation of what genre it is, what what kind it is. Yeah, I think so. At this point, let's uh, get into... <laughs> I don't have much to say. I think you're right there, Dave. Um, I'd like to talk about my uh, my true honorable mention, the one that Dave didn't uh, see. Um, you, you, you good for me to do that? I'm good for you, and I will only preface it by saying that I am horribly, feeling horribly guilty I did not see this film. So, the movie Passages, excuse me, I'm <clears throat> taking a little drink there. The movie Passages I found interesting for a variety of reasons. Um, it's not the quietest movie of the year. It's not the, you know, most interesting cinematography movie of the year. But I got to say, it has some great performances. But above all, um, this is the Passages directed by Ira Sachs, by the way. I love the depiction of the modern complexity of modern relationships. Uh, you have a gay couple, and one of the men is having an affair, somewhat allowed affair, somewhat open relationship with a woman, Agatha. And I think that's a very interesting and bold take on it and how they work around that. A pregnancy is involved in, in how they navigate those relationships and f other friendships is really unique and modern, and I found that very compelling about the plot. And I also thought that it... Uh, 
had a lot to say about the complexities and the troubles that gay couples experience that straight couples might not, especially around societal expectations. Nailed all of that. But what I really, really loved about Passages, Dave, and this is a little spoilery, but that is we in our society, we love the narcissist. We build up and praise the narcissist. Oppenheimer's kind of a narcissist. Leonardo DiCaprio, even though he's kind of the villain, he's a, nar- he's a narcissist and he's a star of the movie. Yeah. Passages does the opposite. The narcissist is thrown down. And that is a very refreshing take. I think we're all kind of sick of watching Donald Trump go into these courtrooms and have <laughs> the final say. So Passages is, is a story about, you know, people's chickens coming home to roost. And it does deal with, I, I do love that those relationships are so modern and complex. You've got multiple partners and people competing and unclear sexuality. That all feels so fresh and so modern mm. that you, would, like, you wouldn't get that in 2010. But you also get a reckoning with, what, with all of these, all of the love that narcissists and bad men, whether they're gay or straight, are getting. You know, the, yeah. one of the main characters in Passages is a successful director. Just the kind of person who might be the sexy, flashy star of another film. But because of the choices he makes and the way he uses people, um, he's kind of punished. And Mm. I love that. And I think that feels fresh. And it's something I would love to see more of. Um, But, you know, it's hard to compete with these other films. It was in my top five. I think it was my number four. Um, But uh, not enough for not enough to combine love, especially with you not seeing it, Dave. Well, yeah, you, you know, it's an interesting thing you mentioned, the, the way that you meant, I like the way that you mentioned Donald Trump, because, of course, he goes into into these court proceedings and he makes a spectacle of himself and then ends up owing people um, tens of millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. He's in um, Barbie debt. He's got Barbie he dollar got, debt. He's got Barbie dollar debt. And and I think that and I think that that. Um, but what we're sick of is we don't even want him to be able to do that. We're so sick of we're so sick of this that we're just that that done that it's like sit there shut up take what's coming to you be a man and and hear what you need to hear because you need to change and you need to you need to grow and what's refreshing in and and passages dave is charisma and bullshit it it gets you so far in that movie exactly um yeah that's wonderful yeah i i I highly recommend it and just you know, our modern relationships are so complicated, and it's not that Oppenheimer's relationships aren't complicated <laughs> or Barbie's relationships aren't complicated um, or the relationship in Anatomy of a Fall isn't complicated, but it's, you know, all of those are, like, heteronormative, on the surface at least, monogamous relationships with occasional affairs. Like, we're talking about a non-heteronormative relationship, yeah. an open relationship um, with people of like varying personalities and I just, just feels very refreshing and modern. And I think it's, it's treated with, you know, um, it, it's treated with adultness. Unlike, you know, like sometimes you'll see in a, 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 yeah. like American movies, it's like, Oh, she's yeah. like, I can't think of a uh, people who are sleeping around or being, um, you know, you know, non-monogamous or it's not treated as like a serious thing that a serious emotional thing. I think of like, well, what's that movie where I don't, Anyway, I, I'm rattling on. I mean, um, it's you know, it's funny that you bring up you know, this is a movie by Iris Axe, 
And I interviewed Ira Sachs, and I think it was 2008 for a movie called Married Life. I think it's somewhat semi-autobiographical. Biographical well, too, and yeah. I got to tell you that Ira Sachs I met was great. He he did a great interview, and uh, Married Life was kind of a Hitchcockian kind of thriller uh, set in suburban America, and it did involve infidelity and involved, you know, uh, it starred Chris Cooper and um, Pierce Brosnan, um, and I think Rachel. Um, oh, goodness gracious, forgive me. I can't remember her last name. Um, Rachel Weiss? Oh, I believe it started Rachel McAdams. Anyway, fantastic, suspense-filled, interesting, funny, kind of scary, intense movie. Um, this is a very different film from the sound of it. Um, and uh, again, you know, always, always love to see good creative people continue to thrive uh took a look at him he look, looks a little bit older than uh, 2008 as i do and uh i uh i will definitely seek this out oh yeah it's about people in their early 40s probably but it's not these aren't young people on the i mean i don't know 30s 40s they're younger they're young enough to still be going out and well i was talking about ira but oh, yeah. uh, ira and me but yeah no the, the characters are older too which is interesting you know not so young that they're having tons of one night stands but not so old that they're uh, you know, settle down and in the home. Right? And All of Us Strangers has a pair of, I, I don't know if we should consider them middle-aged or not, but they could be, um, you know, and uh, a, a, a pair, pair of older men. And I think that that is, uh, you know, aren't, aren't we all anxious to, you know, see adults in movies again? I mean, which is something else, you know, all these movies so far have in common. They're all, they are, these are not movies that have, with the exception of, um, you know, we talked about this when we did Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, shout out, uh, honorable mention. Um, these are mainly movies made for millennials and Gen Xers. Uh, the, Je the Gen Z movies, either they're not getting to us or they're not being made, and I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, well, should I talk about my uh, my special pick before we get please to the do. last one? You know, my special pick, this was going to be painful for me. It was between two movies, and I had to pick the movie that I had to turn off three times to be able to uh, finish watching it. It was so tense. I hadn't felt this tense during a movie since I saw Uncut Gems, which is a slightly different kind of tension. Um, but this is a movie where I kept wondering what horrible, horrible, horrible thing was going to happen. Um, and... Um, it's called uh, The Teacher's Lounge. And in The Teacher's Lounge, um, a pair of teachers um, go into a classroom and they ask to see the, uh, the students' um, wallets, I believe. and um, The boys' wallets, correct. Yes, there have been a series of, you know, things going missing and whatnot. And been going on for a while and so a pair of the teachers decide to do this this takes place in germany right yes yes and um the laws around germany notwithstanding whether or not that would actually take place or whatnot i'm not 100 percent sure um but uh in any event you get the drive that it was kind of a last minute decision and it probably wasn't a good decision and it's followed by uh, other not so great decisions um that maybe seem like good ideas at the time, but that end up um, putting everyone in the school in a position where um, 
there are serious, serious, serious ramifications possible because of what has happened. Um, a film, a lesser film would have just descended into melodrama at this point. Um, and there are great films uh, set in schools that do that. If you've ever, never seen Teacher, Teacher, uh, which is a great Nick Nolte film um, uh, from the from the 80s. You should go out of your way to find that. Ralph Macchio, I think, also has a part in that. But um, this is a quiet film, and it's a tense film, and it's an intense film. And you watch a young teacher a young student wrestling to maintain their sense of hope and their sense of can there be justice and their sense of can there be, um, um, am I going to be punished because I did the best thing I knew how to do at the moment? Um, and I got I to gotta tell you, every teacher I know that has seen this thing has held their breath till the very end of it. Uh, it is um, one of those quiet, incredibly well-made um, suspense thrillers that doesn't involve, you know, true crime or dead bodies or shootouts um, or or lots of or lots of gory details. It's just about people caught up in uh, a situation we've probably all encountered in our lives and and what happens as a result of it. And I think it's a sneaker for a sneaker, as in like it's sneaking into the theme of uh, can we escape the past? And you might not get that on the yeah on absolutely the, on the on a surface read of it, but if you consider where Germany has been, both with the National Socialist regime, regime during World War II and the years prior, and also East Germany's oppressive Stasi police, there's a hit long history of spying and turning people against each other in Germany on top of a culture which has always already very much followed the rules. And I think that there's a lot to be said there about imposing order on our increasingly chaotic society. It might feel good. It, you might get forced into it. I think the teacher is kind of an example of someone who gets caught up in something bigger than herself um, and she kind of gets out of control. Uh, but it, it, I think it has a lot to say about today and whether we can put those systems of spying and oppression if we can leave those in the past and embrace some some sort of justice that's a little different in the future um, I think it's it's got that question it doesn't answer it but it asks it and it kind of shows us the consequences of not exploring our options um, yeah in mo good movie Dave but um, I don't think I think it was like my number 10 or something in, on my annual list mm, okay so, is there a movie that we've... We, there is a movie that we need to talk about our, to round out our top five, right? Is this where we talk about Non-Munchers part, uh, part three, the yeah, musical? sure. Go ahead. <laughs> if you want to talk about that, I mean, the world is your oyster. We only have one movie of our five <laughs> left, and I got to say, it's a little bit different. Than all these other movies. It is, yeah. And it surprised us that it wound up in the top five. Didn't me. It's my number three. Well... But it I did suggest taking it out because it is so different. Yeah. You know, I, I love I think the it through us a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's a quiet movie. Yes. It's a movie with snow. It's a movie that has dissolve cuts. Are we giving it away yet? It's the holdovers. Yeah. Um, By Alexander Payne, uh, getting back together with his um, uh, star, Paul Giamatti, who um, 
is from a movie they made called Sideways um, that I believe did Sideways win the Academy Award for Best Picture? Oh, I don't think there so. It came out. I, I think I, Vir- maybe Virginia Madsen did. She won. The, she won the Academy Award that year, I believe. Um, and uh, that was a movie about wine tasting and middle age romance, and uh, you know, being open to adventure. Um, and this is also a movie about being open to adventure, but um, it's a movie about other deeper things. Um, basically, Paul Giamatti plays this sort of unlikable curmudgeonly teacher uh, who is really just a teacher. That's kind of his only identity in many ways. And he works at this school, uh, this private school. And it's the kind of private school that people send their kids so that they can go off to become, you know, one of the ruling elite of society. And um, one of that sort of endless series of schools that consider themselves part of that pipeline, maybe a school that considers itself to be a little more important than it even is. Mm -hmm. But um, he is tasked because mostly nobody likes him to uh, stay with the holdovers, the kids that cannot go home for the holidays uh, over the over the winter break and uh, winds up in charge of this motley group of kids, including one kid in particular, and uh, ends up becoming far more humanized in the process and helping them to grow in the process. Um, And it's a very wistful coming-of-age story that has a lot of laugh-out-loud funny moments, but also some really uh, deep stuff to say about grieving um and it uh ends on a perfect note it's exactly the kind of movie somebody uh, that somebody like me grew up seeing on the 70s so if you go watch the graduate or you go watch you know any number of the you know um movies that sort of have a uh that feel um you're you're gonna remember you're you're gonna remember it when you watch this movie I was really surprised I liked it so much, Dave. Um, I'm not crying. I'm just losing my voice because we've been drinking this whiskey. Uh, I was I was actually surprised how much I liked it because, like with American fiction, I thought the trailer was totally unrepresentative of the film itself. Mm, yeah. Um, this is an incredibly heartwarming film, a film about, you know, if you watch the trailer, you think it's a it's like a, a, com- a 90s comedy or something. It's much more comedic than it actually is. But I loved the weird 1970s aesthetic, which was reemphasized by, you know, they it's I think it was becoming the year 1971. We see old tapes laying around. The clothing is on point. We got those dissolve cuts, which I absolutely loved. So ballsy, so bold to in, to put those dissolve cuts in there. Um, I loved the attention to detail in recreating the 1970s, both through thematic through um, cinematography, cinematography choices styling choices but also the set design and the clothing and the overall feel you told me dave that someone said the language was off bull hawk i thought the language was on point i saw a critic that i i really respect and and he shall remain nameless who um yeah was, was was saying that that you know the kids in this movie swear more than kids would have at the time or whatever i think the kids in this movie swear a little bit more than kids would have in the movies uh at this time, I mean, it's 1970. I mean, 
Yeah, if you go back and you watch movies made about school culture in the 1970s, they probably don't swear as much. And as they're kids swearing do amongst stone. themselves. They get in serious trouble for right. swearing with the teachers. But I, I that didn't distract me. In well, I mean, the you slightest. were of you were of age in this 1970. Kids were swearing, right? I mean, fuck yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, but above all, I think Paul Giamatti's oh. performance is. You know, we all love Paul Giamatti to begin with, but you start off hating the teacher and thinking you know who he is, and you learn more and more about him, and he becomes more and more of a lovable and honorable figure of the type that... And he his character doesn't change. You just you just get a more rounded picture of the curmudgeon that he is. He never stops being a curmudgeon. It's not, I secretly love puzzles, and we enjoy puzzles together. No, he's a curmudgeon, but you learn to love him for f- who he is, and that's not easy to do in a plot. And or as a performance, and I think Paul Giamatti nails it, including certain scenes where he shows emotion, the tone, the tonal switch between, well, yeah, anger, humor, seriousness is just seamless in this film, and that's why it's so enjoyable to watch, so and, quiet, so and, beautiful. And this movie is the epitome of can we get away from a past? Because what we find out about these characters is exactly how they got to where they are now. And the film effortlessly tells us those stories without telling us and when they do you've got both the, the macro of the the vietnam war and the privilege of the school and the people who don't yeah. make it but you've also got the micro of people in their personal lives being wronged by those systems on a personal level perfect blend there's a there's a um um an academy award nomination for uh divine joy randolph who plays the cook who stays back with all the boys <laughs> and Paul Giamatti's character uh, during the holidays. And, um, you know, all of these characters could have been just stock characters. They could have all been, you know, characters that were just sort of assembled into kind of a light genre, feel-good genre piece. This isn't that. This this is a, a, a movie that really encapsulates a feeling not only of, of, of coming of age, but of coming of age in a way where you lose your innocence and where you're grappling with real life and where you're wondering how you're going to emerge from that. And it's a movie that faces that headlong, um, head on. And it is, just about flawless in the way it does it from the beginning all the way up into the last shot. There's, and there's, there are moments of just laugh out loud funniness in this movie. There's a scene where a character is basically blowing off Paul Giamatti um, and gets an intense comeuppance because he's an idiot. And there's, there's, I won't even tell you what scene it is. I will tell you it's one of the kids and uh it's just so true and it, that that's really the word i would associate with this film wouldn't you mike is just true it has a lot of truth in it i mean it's not as true as like the writer you know but it has a lot of truth in it you know you love the writer or, so or, much or, or the florida project why don't you marry it um i will i will i'd marry the florida project Ugh. I mean, after DeSantis is kicked <laughs> yeah, his ass out. After that, <laughs> hotel's been desanitized. <laughs> well, 
So it's been quite a year, folks. Yeah, 2024 has big shoes to feel to fill. Um, and here's the sad thing this year, you know, um, we did we did review some movies this year. Um, you know, uh, we did uh, Indiana Jones, didn't we? Yes. And what else did we do? We did Oppenheimer. Yeah, and Barbie and, and, and Barbie. Uh, Renfield. And, we, we did like 10, I think. And Renfield. And so, you know, it's... Um, the Flash. The Flash. But it's funny, we're not talking about any of those films, hardly. Um, you know, Oppenheimer and Barbie, but 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 it's uh it's 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 not it's not been the year for marvel movies at all the yeah the franchises are kind of having trouble they had yeah, trouble Indiana this year jones it's not the year or flash or blue beetle or wish or marvels um yeah it wasn't i think people are it was the more original films like they're not truly original because some of them are based on ip but it was the more original films not a continuation that with the exception of spider-man which is a continuation and it will have a continuation um dune didn't come out so maybe dune would have set that correct because i have high hopes yeah, for dune too that's, yeah it's really interesting uh, but it got pushed back to this year what else got pushed back i can't think of i can't i can't think off the top of my head but i feel like there were a couple other things that got pushed oh back. for sure that would have uh, would have altered this list. Well, you looking forward to twenty twenty four, Dave? Well, I'm always looking, always looking forward. You know, another movie I saw this year, and, and, and there was the thing, you know, Talk to Me was an amazing horror film. When Evil Lurks, which is currently on the Shutter Network, go out of your way to see When Evil Lurks. And by the way, if you do that, uh, I don't want any hate mail. When Evil Lurks will really do bad things to you. It is. It's quite an intense uh, horror movie, probably on the level of hereditary or worse um, and uh, in terms of scares, but it in being disturbing. But it, you know, again, you know, I feel like we we were spoiled. You know, there were movies not on this list um, that wouldn't have even made our top 10 that were great movies. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like there's one elephant left in the room, Mike. And I don't think that we can say a ton about it. Maybe we shouldn't say anything. What? I, don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, a movie where I really enjoyed the performances a lot. I loved the design of it. I thought the effects were fantastic. It made me laugh. But it's not on my top ten. It's poor things. And I love Yorgos Latimos. I do too. Hey, he's got a, he's got a lot of nominations, but you know, Dave, this isn't randomly shout out movies you liked. You had your chance. I did to name uh, honorable mentions. This is close up shop time, and this isn't an honorable mention either. I don't feel like. Yeah, I mean, poor things. I feel like I'm I, mentioning I it because everybody is going to wonder why. I would rather give us my number six slot to Bo is Afraid. Yeah, I think it took more risks. Me um, too. Me too. But I, I didn't not enjoy poor things, but it has a lot of things that I don't think it has enough good to make me want to overlook the things I didn't like about it. What do you think about Emma's chance for Academy Award? There's a good question. Let's see. Um, no chance, right? I want to say no chance, but I also want to say it's an awfully transgressive film. And it's kind of the NC-17 Barbie. And they didn't yeah, nominate. Everyone Barbie. said that. 
they didn't nominate Barbie, so maybe it has it has that dark horse chance. Who, who is she up against? Well, Lily, right? She's up against Lily Gladstone, wouldn't she be? I thought Lily Gladstone was supporting. Okay. Let's check it out. You looking it up? Sure, I can look it up. All right. We're not prepared. We're sitting here on our phones. Oscar 2024 nominations. Uh, uh, nominees. Alrighty. All right. Actress in a leading role is Annette Benning, Lily Gladstone, Sandra Huller, Carrie Mulligan, and Emma Stone. Um, no, Lily Gladstone's going to win. Yeah, I think Lily Gladstone. I thought she was supporting. I mean, I thought that it was controversial that she was supporting, but apparently she's not. So I'm going to not have that controversy anymore. Who do we see in a? Do we want to go through the other categories, or do we sure, why not? I'll give you show? my. I'll give you my. If we can do it in five minutes, I mean, we're already over an hour. So All right, okay. and, and maybe we can do it. Maybe we can do another an, uh, another episode or something later. Yeah, we could do it because we have plenty of time. Actor in a leading role: Bradley Cooper, Coleman Domingo. Paul Giamatti, Cillian. Paul Giamatti's going to win. We already discussed this. Cillian Murphy, Jeffrey Wright, you think? Unfortunately, I'd love to see Cillian Murphy win, but Paul Giamatti deserves it, and he will win. Yeah, I I think think you're right in that. Actor in a supporting role. Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr. Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling, Barbie, and Mark Ruffalo, Poor Things. I think Ryan Gosling's going to win it, even though I kind of want... Interesting. Um, uh, Sterling K. Brown, is this fascinating that he got nominated? It is, isn't it? Yeah. I think Robert Downey Jr. is going to take that one. I think that... He, I could see that. I would be fine with that. He's, yeah, he's... Who did I say? Mark Ruffalo? Oh, I, I no, was going to say... I was going to say... Um, Gosling. You Go- said Gosling. Gosling, number one, Mark Ruffalo, too, but Robert Downey Jr., I wouldn't Ruffalo be surprised. Mark Ruffalo is so fun in Poor yeah, Things. He's, I, that is one of the best parts of that movie, yeah. Okay, actress in a leading role, Lynette Benning, Lily Gladstone. We did that one. Lily Gladstone, actress in a supporting role. Emily Blunt, Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple, America Ferrara Barbie, Jodie Foster Nyad, and Divine Joy Randolph, The Whole uh, Divine Joy Randolph's going to win that. I, you know what? It's the only one I even remember. No, I remember Emily Blunt. I remember Emily Blunt big time. I think she's amazing, but I think that uh, Hollywood loves... I think she got nominated because I think she's going to win. That's why I think Divine... Joy Randolph is going to win because yeah, I think she will too. For sure, she's just that good in the film. Yeah, I I clearly remember every she brought joy to every scene in that movie. I and that's with Paul Giamatti stealing the scene every time. So all right, what about directing? Anatomy of a Fall, Killers, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, Zone of Interest. It's a hard one. I feel like Nolan's going to win. Um, that's interesting. Uh, that's very interesting. You don't think so? No, I think you could be. I think you really could be right. I think that the problem, of course, is the temptation is to give it to Scorsese. Yeah, and, and we're not I kind of feel chance. like Scorsese. He hasn't won directing yet. Mm, he, I'm sure he has. But um, and what a dumb. Hi, we have no idea what we're. No, we're you film know, you, critics. You you uh, think you think he's got? I think he's got like ten more movies in him. He's going to be making movies. There's 105. But I would love to see. Um, Jonathan Glazer win it? Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, but I think it's going to be Nolan. Jonathan Glazer. Jonathan Glazer has a rightful place on that list. Um, I hate to say it, if I'm going to replace somebody off of that list, it's either going to be Justin Trier for Anatomy of a Fall or Yogos Latomos for Poor Things, and then I would stick Greta in there. But otherwise, uh, I think you're right. I think uh, Christopher Nolan's going to win for 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 uh, Barbie. What about international feature film? 
Um, I have seen four of the international feature films thus far. Perfect Day, Society of the Snow, The Teacher's Lounge, and The Zone of Interest. And The Zone of Interest is going to win that one. Yeah, Zone of Interest will lead, win feature film. And then last but not least, Best Picture. Uh, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. That is quite a list of films. I think Oppenheimer will win that too. You think Oppenheimer's going to win I don't know that. why, just based on how many nominations Oppenheimer got. I, I just have a feeling, even though I think maybe Martin Scorsese should win Best Director, or even Jonathan Glazer would be awesome, just to reward that kind of risk-taking. I got to say it. I'm going to say something, and it's, we're probably going to get hate mail. Oh, boy. What are you going to say? Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say in a year where Martin Scorsese makes Killers of the Flower Moon and Christopher Nolan makes um, Oppenheimer, there's no way... They give it to Barbie. There's just absolutely no way. way. I don't think Barbie's going to get it either. And I think all of these other movies, except Zone of Interest, are, you know, runners up to those movies. I just. So are you saying Oppenheimer or Killers? I got. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say this too. I think Oppenheimer is a better movie than Killers. So I think Oppenheimer is going to win. I think I like Killers better, but I think. Oppenheimer's still going to win. I don't know why. Okay. Because, you know, the thing about, thing about Oppenheimer is it, ah, the, the sound design and it's, the it's, cinematography, yeah. I feel like pushes the envelope more than Killers does, even though I love those elements of Killers too. Killers, I just feel like Oppenheimer is a little bit of a tighter package, but I yeah. kind of like Killers more it, for my personal taste, but that's my personal taste. Killers is a, is a relentlessly, as are a lot of these films, a relentlessly interesting movie. Oppenheimer, you know, Oppenheimer does something that you kind of wonder how often people can even do it anymore. And that's make uh, a biopic that is absolutely you gotta be fancy, fantastic. And if Maestro wins, we'll again be uh, totally upset, but not surprised. What? Uh, Get Maestro? The Green Book? Yeah, I know, and, and they better book. never do that again. All right. Well, thank you for listening. 